Lord, we thank you for this conference. God, it's our desire to enter into the fellowship of your longings and your desires and your will and your heart for us in this hour as your people, O God. I ask you, O God, that as we meet for these next uh, 45 minutes, that, God, we would connect with your heart, that you would touch us in a real way. Father, right now we open our hearts and we open our minds to receive of you. God, I ask that you would sow the truth of your word into our hearts. Hello? I ask you, Father, that you would pour out your spirit on us. Lord, I ask that you would produce a cry in us for revival. I ask that you would produce a cry in us for the true breakthrough of God. Father, I ask that you would produce in us a vision for something beyond we've ever seen before in our lifetime. Oh God, I ask that you would connect us to the reality of your plan and of your desire to open up the heavens over the nations of the earth and pour out your spirit. Oh God, we ask you to come. I ask you to anoint this time. Oh God, that you would match my weak words with your power in Jesus name. Amen. My heart for us this afternoon, if you want to uh, pick up the notes, you can look at those as well. But my heart, as I mentioned, my burden is for us to, to come into agreement with God's heart, God's plan, and God's desire to pour out a global outpouring of His Spirit at the end of the age. I'm saying a lot of statements there. But God is committed to pour out His Spirit on all flesh. It's going to happen. That is a, a, a biblical reality that we can count on 100%. It doesn't take faith to believe that God is going to pour, bring a, 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 a global revival in the end times because He said He's going to do it in His Word. I mean, in the sense that I didn't get a dream and now I'm asking people to buy into the idea that God's going to do, that, you know, there's going to be this great movement. God set forth in His Word that there would be a great end time move of God and an outpouring of His Spirit on all flesh. And so I want our hearts, my desire this afternoon is that our hearts will come into a place of preparedness and connectedness with His desire for that. Is that okay with you guys? This is, this is something that we need to get prepared for. This, this revival that God is going to pour out is going to be so massively disruptive. When I read the, the testimonies of revival in times past, it's terrifying. I tremble. And to think that we are on the verge of a mighty move of God in these days, it causes me to tremble. And we need to get prepared. His Spirit's going to be poured out on old flesh. I want to uh, share with you this, what I believe is God's prophetic word in this hour. God's, God's longing, His desire is to meet with us in a way beyond anything we can imagine. And I believe that God's prophetic word to the church in this hour is, Ready or not, here I come. <laughs> whether we're ready or whether or not God is going to break in because He loves human beings. I kind of rephrased uh, uh, John 3.16 to say that God so loved the world, He's going to send His Holy Spirit in power that whosoever should get convicted, set free, delivered, filled, baptized with the Spirit will be His anointed witness to the nations of the earth and the eternal object of His affection forever. 
God so loves the world that he did more than just send his son. He's going to send the Holy Spirit to seal what his son did on the cross among the nations of the earth. And I want my heart to come into agreement with God's desire to break in among the nations and to lay hold on a generation and do what only he can do to deliver them like a brand plucked from the fire. This is what we're praying day and night at the house of prayer. This is what's been brewing in my heart. This is the thing that sustains me. It's the fuel for intercession. Believing that against all the odds that we see in our culture for a generation to be saved, that there is, God has an ace up his sleeve. There's the God, there's the revival factor that God is going to pull something out at the end of the age to match the power that Satan is pouring out with a far greater power, the very Spirit of God on all flesh. Glory. I want to, I want to look at Joel 2 here in the notes. Because Joel 2, before I get to that, before I get to that, let me just, uh, let me just give you a picture, a vision for what it's going to look like when this visitation of God comes. In uh, times of revival in past generations, you know, revival is God's arrival. That's what it is. And in times past, when God broke in, entire geographic regions came underneath the, the weightiness of the glory of God. The manifestation of God's presence was a tangible, living reality. And what God does in those times is He makes people aware of His awesome presence and He delivers us from our deism and from our atheism, practical atheism, and He convinces us of His theism. He convinces us of the reality that God is not a stoic, distant God, emotionally distant, out in the cosmos, that He's real, He's alive, He leads with uh, active vibrancy and intimacy and desire, and he has a whirlwind of emotions. And when God breaks in, there's manifestations of his presence that cover entire geographic regions. It's one of the most magnificent phenomenons in, uh, that I can think of in the created order. In all of history, in all of the created order, I think the most marvelous, most spectacular, most awesome thing that we can describe is... Uh, it's times of revival. It's times of the visitation of the presence of God into a geographic region. I want to read you a story here about this. Let's see. Well, I'm just going to tell it to you. There's a couple uh, couple stories of this. If you study revival, there's all kinds of them. But one of my favorites is uh, in the uh, during the, the Great Awakening, where ships would come over from uh, into the eastern seaboard. And these ships, they would cross into, the uh, one revivalist called it the holy zone. There was a, a zone where the presence of God was dwelling. And they said that when ships would cross into this zone, 150 miles out at sea, suddenly the whole entire ship would come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, recognize their need for a Savior, turn to Christ without a preacher, arrive you know, on the shore, and the captain of the ship would cry out, we need a minister. We need a minister to come on board and make sense of what's happening. Ship after ship after ship would come into the holy zone, and, and they would have to send ministers out to the ships. There was a, I'm going to read this in particular one, the sheriff of Utica, some 20 miles away, came on business. He had laughed and mocked at the reports of the revival. 
as his sleigh crossed the canal one mile outside of Rome, an awesome feeling of the presence of God gripped him. Nearer to the village, where the revival was breaking out, he came. The more uh, powerfully he sensed God's presence. So he's out, he's a mocker of this revival, he's coming near the city, and suddenly he feels the awesome presence of God. It says, the sheriff found the people in the business establishments so overcome with awe for God that they could hardly speak. What a miracle. <laughs> that a whole, a whole town suddenly became silent because the awe of God was filling the region. God Almighty. To try to keep from weeping, the sheriff got up several times and went to the window. Soon he was converted. During the, the revival in Wales. See, because I want God to do something. <laughs> I don't want to do something. I mean, I do, but I, I'm not interested in my words. I'm interested in a breakthrough of God like Finney preaching for 15 minutes. God breaks in. It says that his, he had to stop. He said the people weren't even listening to him anymore because God came in such power. I've spent so much time. Declaring the gospel to people with blank stares on their face with all my might and all my zeal and all my insight and all my whatever. But in times of revival, one word, the Holy Spirit anoints just a phrase, just a word, and wham, it strikes with such power and force that suddenly, suddenly the convictors, the, the sinners convicted, writhing on the ground under, under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And you say, brother, would you like to accept Jesus? <laughs> you know? God. And during the well, revival in Wales, you would get on a train. The word got out. There was revival breaking out. You get on a train and you ask the conductor, which, which way to the revival? He'd say, go that way until you feel it. <laughs> you would feel it in the air. There was... There was a sensation, a physical presence of God. Second Chronicles 7, the glory of God filled the temple. The priests could not even enter the temple. The realm of the glory of God was so strong, was so powerful. They couldn't even enter into the realm of His light and of His virtue and of His glory and of His majesty and power and beauty. Oh, God, we need this in our meetings. I'm weary these days. I'm weary of preaching. I love teaching the Word of God. We have a Bible school. I'm a part of it. And, and I love uh, instructing in it. But I want God to show up. God, we ask you, God. God, in these days of so many words and so little power, Father, we confess we need a we need a baptism, God. We need you to come, God. I want to talk to you about uh, Joel two. Here's what's happening. I'm going to give you the context, and then we're going to jump into uh, the, bulk, the main part of this uh, message. In chapter 1 of Joel, he begins his message by summoning the full attention of the entire nation. And what he says, basically, is the message I'm about to give you is of the utmost 
significance of the utmost importance for your survival as a people group and as a nation. Because the nation of Israel at the time that Joel began to prophesy was in a widespread crisis. The nation had been uh, shaken and reduced and devastated by the judgments of God. And Joel is deposited, he has a divine download, and he's going to give the people God's prescribed method to turn a nation in a time of crisis uh, back to God so they could experience his mercy and his blessing and his restoration. And Joel begins to outline God's call for the people to turn to him fully in that hour. And... uh In Joel chapter 1, the crisis that was breaking in was a locust invasion. It had utterly devastated the land. And the people had been totally reduced. There was famine breaking out, disease breaking out. It was horrifying conditions. When you segue into chapter 2, what you think could not hardly get any worse, Joel prophesies, is about to get worse. And he says... Okay, I have summoned the attention of the people. You have not listened. You have not heard. He says, therefore, blow the trumpet in Zion. Let the very greatest, uh, uh, you know, whatever it is, thing that could could uh, gain the attention of the people. Let that be used to gather the attention of the entire nation. At that time, it was an alarm. Let an alarm be sounded that would cause even the bridegroom to leave his chamber on his wedding night. He says, let an alarm be sounded that would cause every person at every level of society, regardless, to assemble to this call. He goes, because this locust invasion, the disease that's breaking forth, the fires that are devastating the crops, the famine that's plaguing the land, all of that is about to be compounded by a massive military invasion that will crush us as a people group and deport us into a foreign land. He says, you must hear God's message in this hour. You can, as you read through it, you can feel uh, Joel's heart and his concern as a prophetic voice and a messenger for his people. And in, uh, in cha- and so then what he does is he lays out in chapter two. And we can, uh, we'll go through the verse in just a moment here, but he lays out God's grounds and God's conditions for revival. For restoration. That they wouldn't experience the breakthrough of God in his judgments. But they would experience the breakthrough of God in his revival. In revival. Because there's two primary interventions of God in history. There's two primary ways that God uh, actively intervenes in human affairs to redirect the course of mankind. One is through judgment. And one is through revival. It's the kindness and the severity of God. Romans 11.22 God in His kindness longs to bring revival. He longs to bring restoration to a people that are in, a, that are in crisis. To a people that are uh, astray from Him. But He will send judgment as an act of His mercy to stem the tide of evil that's overwhelming a generation. That's overwhelming a nation and a people group. Right now, I believe that we don't see the, the outward crisis of a locust invasion in the nation. We don't see the outward crisis of famine in America. But there's a greater crisis happening in the nation. And the reason that it's greater is because it doesn't have any outward visible signs that, that, uh, uh, that affect us like a famine would. 
And so there's no sense of urgency because the crisis is a moral crisis. It's something that's happening in the heart of a nation. And what happened in, in Israel's history is they didn't believe God would judge them. They had a, this uh, doctrine about the inviability of the people of God that he would only judge the other nations. And so, and so when God broke in with judgment, Joel said he had to tell the people that it was actually God who was the one orchestrating this particular scenario and he was doing it to shake them in the temporary so they would not encounter his wrath for eternity. But, but Joel had to form their paradigms and tell them, no, God, the crisis is from God. He's the one who's bringing this crisis, but it was the result of a moral crisis. It came like a shock to the people. They'd always known God as, as, uh, El Shaddai, the covenant God whom they'd grown up knowing and, and going, you know, hearing in Sunday school about. It was shocking and offensive and devastating for them to understand that it was actually Jehovah, their covenant God, that was bringing this shaking to the nation and he was actually doing it as an act of his mercy. God will only allow people to go so far on their own before he intervenes in their path. And in his leadership over history, God intervenes in these two primary ways. The one, he intervenes in judgment. But the other way, the way that he longs to intervene, is through revival. It's the kindness and the severity of God. And so, in uh, chapter 2, Verses 12 through 17, Joel sets forth God's the grounds and conditions for an end time revival and for a, a revival in Joel's time. But this would have end time implications when you get into the full context of the of uh, chapter two. The grounds are the reason for which God sends revival. The conditions are the not without which the grounds are the reasons. They're the purposes that, that God has to, res- to bring restoration and spiritual awakening to a nation and to a people. His conditions are our part. That's what we fulfill to make, uh, uh, to, you know, usher in uh, God's presence. And so what we see as a result when the grounds and the conditions join together is that we see Acts 2 happen. We see a mighty breaking in of the wind of God. In Acts 2, the grounds for the outpouring of the gospel to go f- uh, the grounds were for the spirit to break in so that the gospel could go forth in power to the nations. The conditions were the, for the disciples to gather in unified prayer and wait upon the Lord. Okay, I'm through with my introduction. I'm just spitting at you guys. I just got so much stirring in me. <laughs> I want to. I want to lay some things out though, because I, I do want to. I want to. I want to set forth some biblical precepts here. For us to lay hold of. You guys okay with... Uh, you guys follow me on the judgment and, and revival? Judgment is a very touchy, touchy subject. And it takes a lot of wrestling and a lot of meditation to get clarity about why God judges people. Why He, he allows... Things like natural, he can use things like natural disasters as he did in Israel's history and military invasions to awaken a nation. That's not the message for today, but it's what I encourage you to, uh, to wrestle through. Okay. Primary reason we have here, uh, I have 10 pages of notes and I only gave you guys two pages. 
If you want to get those notes, you can email me at benjinolo at ihop.org. I have 10 pages of notes on this message, but they only allowed me to do, to do two pages to print them out. It's a B-E-N-J-I-N-O-L-O-T at ihop.org. So if you want to get uh, uh, the rest of the notes, you can just email me there. Okay. There are at least six reasons God is going to send an end-time revival. It's the salvation of the lost. It's going to be a great end-time harvest of souls. God cares more about the lost than any individual on earth in history. And He is absolutely committed to bringing in a salvation, a, 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 a harvest of souls at the end times. Number two, to strengthen the church. And this is something that we're going to need in the days to come. In context, to again, to Joel 2, he says that, that God is going to pour out His Spirit on all flesh. And then you ask, when is that going to happen? And he says, this is going to happen before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Meaning, that that's starting in, in the middle point of the tribulation period. If you've been hearing any of the end times teaching, a final seven year, uh, seven year period of human history. God is going to send a revival before that period of time. So again, we're expecting and believing for an end time revival. And part of it is to strengthen the church and her resolve to remain steadfast in the most difficult and trying hour in human history. But it's not only to anchor our spirits and give us strength and courage and power on the inner man during that trying period of time, but God wants us to be anointed and effective witnesses during that time. It's not a defeatism mentality where we say, well, the whole, look at all these negative and terrible things that are going to be happening during the end times. The Antichrist is coming. And so, Lord, just give me the power to survive. I'm, I'm believing in more than power to survive and believe that God desires more for us in that hour. God wants to anoint a church to be effective, anointed, powerful witness witnesses in the darkest hour of human history. It's for the strengthening of the church. Number three, it's to expunge the prevailing influences of demonic activity. It means to annihilate, to crush, to dispel the prevailing influence of demonic activity. There, the nation of Israel at this particular time was involved in all kinds of syncretism and idol worship. Demonic deception, full blown, had crashed over the nation like a tidal wave. And there was a whole culture being submerged into this deception. And God's answer to it was to pour out something stronger. This scenario is going to be poured, played out in the end times. When Satan breathes his greatest strategy in uh, usurping uh, God's influence over the nations by raising up an antichrist figure and by breathing deception on the nations of the earth, God's answer in that hour will be to pour out something stronger than deception, something stronger and more powerful than Satan's tactics. He's going to pour out the Spirit of God in such power that it'll break the principalities and strongholds over geographic regions. David Brainerd coined this dynamic of defeating spiritual strongholds, the steel punch of God. He, 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 this is something that happened in his ministry. It was when the intercessors break through in such a significant way 
that the stronghold over a region is bound, the stronghold is broken, and the power of God breaks through over a geographic region. He was ministering to the Delaware Indians. And the culmination of this one particular story I'm thinking of is when David Brainerd was, uh, he was there, and, uh, you know, as his usual uh, mode, was just praying and interceding for these Indians. And he's in the snow. He has tuberculosis. He's a dying man. And he's an intercessor. And he's crying out to God to break through for these Indians to save them. And suddenly he finds himself in a pool of his own sweat in the middle of the snow, and the snow all around him had been completely melted. And suddenly, he had a, the peace of God entered his soul, and he knew that God was breaking through. And he, and he called this the steel punch of God. He runs back to the town, and he sees that in the town, the Indians are falling on their faces all across the town, prostrate before God. The principality had been bound. The stronghold had been broken, had come down. And God was pouring out His Spirit. The uh, Daniel t- 10 illustrates this point in a, a lot of clarity as well. When, if you remember the Prince of Persia, Daniel gets the breakthrough. But here's the issue, Second Corinthians 4.4. 4, it says that, that Satan is blinded. Satan, who is the God of this age, has blinded the minds of people who don't believe. Lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. 1 John 5.19 says, We know that the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Meaning there's a tide. There's a current of evil that's all moving in one direction. And the earth and our society and the societies of the earth on a direct collision course with God. That's what this verse is saying. That this, that this tide of demonic deception is leading us into a collision course with God. But... 1 John 4.3.8 For this purpose the Son of God was manifest that He might destroy the works of the devil. And the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 8 and 10 He said that He preached the unsearchable riches of Christ so that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the powers and to the principalities. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against powers and principalities and spiritual hosts of wickedness in the air. Every day breathing upon, breathing lies, breathing deception upon the minds of unbelievers. There's an unbelievable amount of spiritual warfare taking place right now, even at this conference. I mean, this is the greatest breakthrough most of us have experienced in our life. You know, you come to the conference, you get a prophetic word, the worship's awesome, something happens, you weep. This is awesome. There is so much spiritual warfare, I want to tell you, going on in this place. There is a breakthrough coming that is so far beyond anything we can even imagine. Suddenly, suddenly the wind of God came. The grounds, the conditions were fulfilled. Suddenly the wind of God filled that room in the upper room where they were praying. Praying for the suddenly moment of God when the powers and principalities are bound and the power of God is released. Uh, four. I have six reasons here. Four. To vanquish rebellion in the hearts of people. Revival has also been called times of spiritual awakening. God convicts people of the reality of their depraved condition apart from Him, thus breaking them from independence and rebellion. And drawing them into agreement with his love for them. I want to read a story here on this. It's 
stuff is powerful, isn't it? Revival. I mean, you just, I just don't even have any clarity right now, but as I talk about it, I just feel like this is just powerful. Not my message, the issue of revival. <laughs> Still not feeling my Wheaties yet. Let's see, where is it? I just want to read this story. It says, On the conviction of the Holy Spirit during times of revival, God's confronting sin in such a powerful and disruptive way that, that I mean, account after account after account in revival history. I have a 350-page book I've been reading here. Another one is over 300 pages. Uh, and it's just story after story after story after story of this kind of thing happening, the conviction of sin. But I want to read this one. It says, In Derry, Ireland, four young men gave the testimony of their conversion in a service of several thousand people. The next day, another service was held, and people began, began to spontaneously assemble in the church as they were drawn by the Holy Spirit. The church filled until it was overcrowded. You can sense something's beginning to happen. <laughs> Have you ever had that feeling before? You have a feeling before you go into a meeting, before you go to a conference, it's something touches you that's different. You go, this is, there's something different going on here. I love that. The meeting felt still as a grave. The stillness was fearful. Those who were present will never forget it. At length, the silence was broken by unearthly cries, uttered simultaneously by several in different parts of the church. In a few minutes, the vestry was filled with people who lay in agony and absolute bodily prostration. <laughs> now, here's an account from that service. Well-educated merchant of high morality suddenly saw hell open before his eyes and an irresistible power seemed to force him headlong into it. He looked around and said to himself, I know where I am. This is the church where I usually worship. I am under a delusion. But as he looked down, there was hell. He rose from his seat and seized the back of the pew in front of him. The smoke from hell seemed to rise in his face. He shuddered and his heart cried out, My sin, my sin, I am lost, I'm lost. Can you imagine? This kind of thing was commonplace. When Jonathan Edwards preached sinners in the hands of an angry, angry God, he began to articulate to the people, the message that it was only the mere pleasure and mercy of God that upheld them from hell's jaws yawning. It says uh, in, in Isaiah, it says that hell is waiting for you beneath, excited to meet you at your coming. And he illustrated to them the fact that, that the gaping jaws of hell were reaching out for these sinners in his message. And then suddenly people began to have visions of the very flames of hell and the open floors beneath them. And that they were suspended over the very flames of hell. This kind of preaching isn't very commonplace today. But God anointed it. I mean, people started to have visions. And what happened is they'd lay hold on the backs of the pews thinking they were going to fall into the, into the pit of hell. And there were uh, all kinds of testimonies of scratch marks on the backs of pews. Can you imagine a scene like that? I'm sure there's many of you in here that... that uh, are revivalists, that's why you're here. And many of you like to preach on revival and pray about revival. Can you imagine if you're praying or preaching for revival and suddenly something like that breaks out in front of you? My God. God. 
He's grabbing on, it says. He's grabbing on to the back of the pew lest he go, lest he fall into hell. That's, con- that's conviction of sin. <laughs> I would have answered. And then he says this. He staggered out of the building and went home. Had anyone asked me, where are you going? I would have answered in calm despair. I am going to hell. Upon reaching his room for several hours, he cried out to God for mercy. Then God's promise came to his mind. He joyously sees them in heavenly radiance spread over his soul. The gospel never felt so good. (laughs) Oh, I was radically converted seven years ago. I had a four-hour experience where I thought I was in hell. And I cried out to God and God broke in. And it never, I mean, I never experienced the love of God. I grew up in the church. I never experienced like that in all my life. I was a total prodigal. But there's something about this heavenly radiance spreading over your soul when you've touched the flames of hell. A Presbyterian minister commenting on this revival in Ireland said, at some of the meetings which I attended, There were instances of bodily prostration. It was truly dreadful to see some of these. To hear at intervals the agonizing cries for mercy and to see the terror depicted on every feature of the countenance was truly awful. He says, but how how delightful it was to observe the sin-stricken souls resting on the Savior. Words can convey no idea of the heavenly joy that beams from the eye or of the calm assurance deposited in the countenance. Today's conversions, I've been a part of, uh, uh, you know, doing uh, some of the Harvest Crusades and things. And and uh, there's a lot of concern after the Harvest Crusades that these people who are getting saved might get confronted by a Jehovah's Witness or a, uh, you know, what's the other? Mormons. By Mormons waiting out in the parking lot to reconvert them to, you know, their thing. There's a lot of concern because that kind of thing is so commonplace. But in these these situations, you didn't have to worry about that kind of thing. The, it says that there was an 85% uh, rate of, of uh, conservation of the conversions that took place during Finney's revivals. When Charles Finney preached and the conviction of the Holy Spirit would come in such power during these times of revival, I mean... The idea of Mormonism just, you know, it just doesn't even, doesn't even have any weight at all. Another account from revival in Boviva, Ireland. In a moment, as if struck with a thunderbolt, about a hundred persons were prostrated on their knees, sending forth a wail from their hearts, bruised, broken, and overwhelmed with horror such as never will be forgotten, and which perhaps for solemnity and awe will never be surpassed until the day of judgment. For hours, these stricken, smitten, bleeding souls remained on their knees, unconscious of everything but their own guilt and danger and need of a Savior, pleading and praying with an intensity and fervor which surpasses all description. Listen to this. It says, Had a pestilence swept over the neighborhood, leaving one dead in every house, greater awe would not have been produced. It's a conviction of sin. There's a reality of eternal punishment. And it is not God's will. It says that hell, hell was created for the devil and his angels, for anybody to go to that place. It's not his will. But God will shake people to their core on this side of eternity in his, in his temporal judgments, lest they encounter the eternal shaking of God in the age to come. I'm so grateful for judgment. I'm so grateful for the mercy of God's judgment. 
That he stems the tide of evil, vanquishes rebellion in the hearts of men, expunges the demonic influences over geographic regions. He shakes us, convicts us of our sin, and brings us into a place of recognizing our great need for, for, for uh, his son, for a savior. For reformation, every uh, five on the notes here. For reformation, i got to speed this up. Uh, every religious, social, political, economic, educational uh, system in our society needs wholesale reformation and restoration. But you cannot have a reformation without a revival. You can have a revival without a reformation. That's the layman's prayer revival, 1857 to 1859. God sent revival. He poured out a spirit on the church and he, and he thrust the issue of slavery to the forefront of the church and he said, deal with this issue, but nobody sees the gates and the hour of influence to turn the tide and, and bring reformation into the nation. And so in 1861, we get world war. I mean, we get the civil war. God harvests a million souls in three years during the layman's prayer revival. But we don't answer the call to bring reformation to a society to contain and conserve the fruit and establish God's kingdom on the earth. So he sends judgment in the civil war and a million people die. He was preparing a generation for death. It's critical when God pours out his spirit that we seize the gates of influence in that hour. Abortion overturned our educational institutions. Peter Singer, the the. Uh, one of the, the head bioethics professor at Princeton University believes we should be allowed to kill our children up to the age of three years old. He believes in euthanasia. He believes we need to exterminate. Uh, he's got Hitler's ideology. And he, this is the foremost bioethics professor at one of the top Ivy League schools in the nation instructing the minds of our brightest youth. <laughs> we are in an hour of crisis. And we need a wholesale reformation, but it won't come without revival. For the exaltation of Christ and the vindication of God's glory. Right now we have such a low view of God, but during times of revival, God vindicates His glory and exalts Jesus by by uh, uh, bringing people into an awareness of His majesty. We could just spend a whole message on that one. But I want to get to the uh, conditions here. Okay, let's go to Roman numeral 5. And we're going to hit these conditions quickly and then uh, we'll finish with that. If you, if you guys want to, uh, I'm, I'm extrapolating all these truths from, from the book of Joel. So I did, uh, you know, there's obviously no way to go through, uh, and, uh, do an exegetical thing. So if you're the, like me and you go prove it to me, it's biblical. It's in the Bible. You can look through it on Joel yourself. We have a whole class. I taught it five times on the book of Joel. We just go through it line upon line. So this is all in there. But, uh, necessary conditions. This is our part. Wholeheartedness. God's, Desire from His people, His greatest desire is for us to love Him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And that's not a suggestion, it's the greatest commandment. There's a, there's a need for wholeheartedness right now, but I'll tell you this right now. Nobody in this room, we're not gonna, we don't have the ability to stir ourselves up to become wholehearted. This has to be an act, this has to be a, a uh, something that God produces in us 
Right now, in our most hungry state, most of us in the church in America, in our most hungry state, are still well below what I believe God imagines wholeheartedness looks like. I'm talking about myself included. These days, I am praying that God would awaken desire in me to desire Him. I'm just asking God to give me a hunger to hunger. That's where I'm at. And so we, we, we need to begin to pray that, begin to ask God to stir in us a hunger and a desire so we can enter into the kind of wholeheartedness that would usher in God's presence in a manifest way. Because the stewardship of His presence and of His emotions and of His power is so great that it can't be squandered on people who haven't set their lives before Him in such a way that to come into agreement with it when it comes. I'm saying a lot there, but I can't, I can't develop it. <laughs> Rending our hearts. Historically, you would rend your garment as an act of desperation and an act of grief. But Joel here and God was calling the people to actually rend their hearts, meaning for them to tear away from the destructive habits and sinful influences in their lives and to come to a place of full repentance. And in our context, this looks like pulling up the root systems as we... And I found that this is a daily process. It's a daily process of rending our hearts by tearing away from everything that would lead us into compromise or hinder the flow of God's Spirit in our life. We need to pull up the root, the roots of bitterness and anger and jealousies and lust and all the things. It's a rending. It's a tearing of our hearts. Jesus said, that, told us to, to, to deal severely with sin, speaking figuratively, figuratively in Matthew 5.29. He said, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. For it is more profitable that one of you, uh, that one of your members should perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And, uh, but this is not where it ends. The rending and the tearing away from sin is only the first step into bringing our lives into agreement with God's anointed pattern, uh, for life. Where we actually embrace His values, His ways, and the lifestyle that He's prescribed through the Sermon on the Mount in His Word. Rending our heart is the first step into that. The evangelical awakening in Britain was ushered in by John and Charles Wesley and George Whitfield. If you followed some of their biographies, these men were so intentional about systematically uh, lining up their lives in such a way with the will of God that when the power of God broke through in revival, they became His vessels and His conduits of glory to the nations for salvation and deliverance because He could entrust them with that. They had prepared themselves. Evan Roberts, at age 13, somebody told him, never miss a prayer meeting because you never know when the Holy Spirit's going to show up. So for 13 years, he went to every prayer meeting, children's prayer meetings, women's prayer meetings. He went to every prayer meeting he could. And when he was 26 years old, suddenly in one of those prayer meetings, the power of God broke in and he became God's vessel an instrument for revival to the nation. And it was a massive awakening, a massive revival in that nation. I want my heart to be prepared so I'm not shocked in the hour of revival, but I'm actually able to harness the power that's being poured out in such a way I can declare the Word of God and be an anointed to deliver to multitudes in this generation. They're being drowned out in our culture. I'm not even close, but this is what I'm contending for. Where are we? I know where I am. I completely lost my notes here. Oh, okay. 
The other thing that we need to do after we rend our hearts is uh, rend- rending our hearts has the application of resisting sin as well. It's not just tearing away from sin, it's resisting sin. Hebrews 12.4 says, says it this way, You have not yet resisted bloodshed uh, to bloodshed striving against sin. That's what Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane in the hour when He was feeling the convulsions of what He was about to face. And He's going before the Father and He's sweating drops of blood. He was experiencing such in, internal turmoil and he was resi- I believe that Jesus was resisting uh, a desire not to part from God, the Father's will in that hour. You remember the prayer? He says... If it's possible, take this cup away from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done, O God. And there's a resisting of sin unto bloodshed that we have not entered into yet. It's a resisting of those temptations when they rise up within us. Lastly, I want my heart to be torn over the lost. I want it to bleed with longing for God and His purposes. It's what Jeremiah said. Oh, that my head were waters, my eyes a fountain of tears, and I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Okay, we're uh, about out of time. So I'm going to leave you with these notes here. And uh, I'm going to leave you with one last story. Is that okay? <laughs> I'm sorry it wasn't more clear today. I usually like to have it laid out, but I'm used to teaching. We teach three hours, you know, in the Bible school, we teach three hours a night for three weeks straight. And you just have so much that you just, but doing it in a 45 minute context, I try to get a lot in there, but it's hard. Okay, I just uh, have here uh, the impact of personal breakthrough. The impact, if we break through by embracing God's conditions, coming into agreement with His purposes, so we have to look forward to. Charles, uh, I want to use Charles Finney as an example of somebody who broke through. Because the people in history who have had breakthroughs carry the atmosphere and the presence of heaven with them wherever they go. Think about it. Why was the shadow of Peter healing people? Peter said to the guy who was... uh, Begging for money, he said, silver and gold I do not have. But this is what he said. He did what I do have. What I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus, arise up and walk. I want it. I want something. I'm so tired of barrenness. I want to be able to say to somebody, what I do have in the name of Jesus. He carried the atmosphere and the presence of heaven with him wherever he went. Here's what Finney, it was said about Finney. Finney was invited to tour the large cotton mill. He's just going and one morning he goes in and he visits this cotton mill. He entered one room where the girls asked at the looms and spinning machines were lightheartedly laughing. As he walked toward the work area, one of the girls looked into Finney's eyes and began to tremble. Her shaking fingers broke the thread and the loom stopped. The girl next to her looked up to see why the loom had ceased. As she saw Finney's face, she also began to tremble and broke her thread. One after another, the loom stopped. The owner heard the equipment stopping and came to see what was going on. When he saw that the whole room was in tears, he told the superintendent to stop the mill, for it was more important for souls to be saved than for the mill to run. Now listen to this. Up to this point, Finney had not said one word. When Finney... Stories, I get chills when I think about this. When he walked into a city, suddenly 
conviction. We begin to break out. People didn't know what was happening. They found themselves weeping. They found themselves under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, all messed up on the ground, lying prostrate. Several thousand in this particular example were saved as a result of him saying nothing. But he carried the atmosphere of heaven with him. I just remember, uh, last thing, I'm going to let you go. I know you got to go get dinner. I remember one time, I just touched this a little bit. I had been spending some time with the Lord in a season of consecration. I went to a friend's house and his uh, brother came over who was a drug dealer. And uh, they're, they're all partying, drinking, and, you know, uh, have all kinds of stuff going on. But I just began to share with him about the Lord. Next thing you know, he comes to church with me. Next thing you know, he gets saved. Six months later, he tells me, he goes, you know, I never told you this. He says, but I wanted to tell you, I wanted to tell you what happened. He goes, that day you were sharing with me, you know, about God and everything. He goes, uh, I would, you know, I was in no place to listen to you. He goes, but something suddenly happened. He goes, an amber light surrounded you. He goes, a supernatural light surrounded you. He goes, and I knew I needed to listen to everything that you had to say. He goes, and when I went to church, he grew up a Muslim. He had no grid for anything. He goes, when I went to church, I knew I needed to listen to the, pre- to the preacher. So when he told me about the gospel, about getting saved, I knew that's what I needed. That was his salvation experience. I just touched it a little bit, but it's, it's a token. of It's given me a hunger to enter in to this. So let me pray for us. Lord, I ask you in Jesus' name that you would give us, Lord, I ask that you would give us a resolve in our hearts to walk out the conditions, Lord, that You have set forth to usher in unprecedented revival and breakthrough. God, not just for us, but for a generation. Not just for us, but for a nation and for the nations of the earth. Every tribe, tongue, and nation would have a witness of heaven, I ask You, O God. Would You do it in us in the name of Jesus? My God, I ask You, Lord, that You would cause our hearts to arise and embrace, Lord, everything, God, that You have set forth for us to embrace, to usher this in. Oh, Lord, we have no greater purpose in life but to gaze upon You as a supreme object of all our affections. Oh, God, even now, would You usurp every throne in our heart and become our chief affection in Jesus' name. I ask You to make our hearts the majestic courts of Your dwelling place, O God. That You would find Your dwelling place in us, God. Let Your kingdom come. That Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That You would dispel the powers of darkness. That You would establish Your kingdom on the earth. In Jesus' name, Amen. Alright, God bless you guys. Uh, guys, we're just going to ask that you would exit out these doors here in the front just because FMA auditions are going to be coming in and they're all waiting out there. So if you could just exit out this way and make sure you take all your belongings with you. Thanks again. I can't even write it. Okay, here we go. And then this one's gone. Fire, fall. Are they in the bookstore down here at all? This one is not out of print. You can get it on Amazon. This Amazon? one's in our bookstore. What is this one? Yeah. Okay, Amazon. Firefall, read, Amazon, and then Revival Fire. Yeah. And that's D U E. Yeah. Well, you're in the right path because I've just been set apart. Awesome. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, I, 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 I
What's that? The email, the email address. Oh, okay. For the email address. Okay.